Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. I'm Jennifer Berryman. In today's episode, we are focusing on the experiences and well-being of caregivers, residents, fellows, faculty, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. The residency and fellowship training years are among the most demanding of a physician's career. Today, a focus on the resources and the support that can help ease those challenges and lead to greater professional and personal satisfaction. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Bird, a professor of emergency medicine at UMass Medical School. And most recently in 2019, he founded and leads the Clinician Experience Office. Dr. Bird, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to join you. Yeah, thanks for making the time. This is so important and so timely given the pandemic, and we will talk about that. But I, I want to mention that the Cl Clinician Experience Office is jointly funded by UMass Medical School and UMass Memorial Medical Center. What's your primary goal in, in leading this effort? Yeah, my primary goal is to improve the wellness of our clinicians. Um, not only the wellness, but also their engagement with their workplace. And it's more than just, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things we offer, but it's not, um, it's not a Band-Aid on on things that aren't going well, but really giving people the tools to help them thrive. So, I mean, maybe the best way to sort of demonstrate that is to talk about some of the specific things that you and your office have initiated. Um, so I'll mention a couple of them. If you could just say a little bit about each one, we can dive in as deeply as we need to. So uh, UMass joined the Physician Wellness Academic Consortium, fondly known as PWAC. That's right. Talk about that and what that what what that affords us. Yeah, so the PWAC is an organization. We were the 16th academic medical center to join. There are now 19, and importantly, they have validated surveys of physician or clinician wellness um, in various domains of that. So things such as um, have what are the benchmarks about people who have been verbally abused about people who have, what is their professional fulfillment? What is their burnout? How many hours do people work, et cetera? So we are able to survey our providers and benchmark where we are in various domains against other academic medical centers across the country. So it allows us to get a baseline and then also to leverage PWAC and the expertise there in interventions to improve wellness. I think it might surprise some people who are listening when you're talking about verbal abuse or other kinds of abuse against physicians. Is that, uh, that is something that needs to be talked about. Absolutely. And it's not just physicians. It's, it's everyone in, in the workforce. We have data now that, you know, something like 30% up to 40% of medical students, residents, nurse practitioners, PAs, and faculty have been subject to verbal abuse in the last year. And the, we now know the profound effects of those people who report verbal abuse, the profound effects on their wellness. So it is clearly an area uh, that we need to um, continue to investigate and work on to improve and eliminate. Yeah, and to be clear, you're not implying, and I don't think it's the case that 
that the verbal abuse that's being experienced by caregivers is a result of the stress from the pandemic. This is a, a, a problem that long predates the pandemic. Clearly that's the case. And we, we aren't able actually to tease out what the contribution of the pandemic is to that, but there is no doubt that this is absent the pandemic this is still an issue and still a problem. Another thing you've done since um, founding this office is to conduct the first physician wellness survey. Tell me about that and maybe what it revealed to you. Yeah, so we did that in mid-November 2020 through early December 2020. We had almost 1,900 responses. And so, you know some high-level things are, one, that we are largely at the mean nationally with regards to professional fulfillment and burnout within medical students, nurse practitioners, PAs, residents, fellows, and faculty. So that's good. So we, we are starting at an okay place, but we clearly have some areas where we've excelled and some areas where we have um, identified areas that we need to focus on. And we are still diving through all of those reports and meeting with individual division directors and department chairs to review their data and to see where there are opportunities to to make improvements. So it's we are early on this journey, but it was critically important data to obtain. Let's transition. That's a good way to talk about some of the tools that are available, not only to the leaders, but to the frontline caregivers. Um, a peer support network, that's something that you've really focused on quite a bit. Can you talk about that and what that offers? Yes, so, so we launched that right at the beginning of the pandemic, somewhat fortuitously. And peer support network are our peers. So our, our peer support network includes residents, fellows, nurse practitioners, PAs, and faculty who have had formal training in how to lend or give support to someone who, who has had some event happen. And those events are an unexplained or unexpected death um, a poor patient outcome, it could be a lawsuit or something like that, or maybe it was, they've had some very difficult interactions at work with whomever. In the past, those people, maybe they would go to their manager, their division director, the department chair, or confide in a friend, or we know that more commonly, they just internalize it and don't discuss it. And so the literature largely coming from Joe Shapiro, who runs the Office of Professionalism at Mass General, is that peer support, when you train people how to give it, how to do it, has tremendous benefits to the people who are requesting the peer support. So we launched uh, in March of 2020. We have 26 people trained in peer support. And when we hear, that is we, the CXO office, Clinician Experience Office, hears about someone who wants some support, we, I connect them with one of the peer supporters. And during the pandemic, we offered virtual peer support via Zoom twice a day, seven days a week. And uh, we don't do that virtually now. We hear about people who request peer support a number of ways. We can hear from our from the risk management group. We can hear from HR, the GME office. People may self-report, although not that commonly, or a friend or colleague um, refers someone, says, hey, someone's kind of struggling here and, and perhaps they could benefit from peer support. So they, someone contacts the CXO office and then typically within about eight hours, we pair up the person who needs the peer support with a peer supporter. And then it's 
no records are kept. It, it's between the two of them. You know, and if the person needs other support other than peer support, we can help them with that. But that's generally not the case. Yeah, I think uh, most people who've been a patient can relate to how vulnerable and difficult that can be and emotional and overwhelming and probably don't often think about the toll that unfortunate outcomes have on the caregivers themselves. Is that kind of most of what you find physicians and caregivers struggling with over time? Yeah, it's probably roughly a third of, of an unexpected outcome, a third being named in a lawsuit, and a third of other things to include maybe not an unexpected patient outcome, but a poor patient outcome, or maybe it's to include someone who's you know had a had a person as a patient for years and years and years. And so it is, I mean, there is a common theme to all of the of the referrals, and that is, you know, the, the toll of, of being a caregiver and being a human being. And it's that humanity that draws so many people to medicine in the first place. That's right. And I know you said that it has um, been curtailed, but I'm curious about those daily peer support check-ins that you were doing during the pandemic. What kinds of conversations did those bring forth? Maybe it's hard to remember back at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't know a lot about the disease. We we're not sure was there going to be adequate PPE. Um, you know, we had just kind of started proning patients, and um, and it was really and you know and the kind of home life disruption for people perhaps with school age children was just hitting everyone, and and it was largely a confluence of all of those, and people just kind of wanted to talk about their experience, their, um, their fright um, of the unknown. And so during that period, really, when we were doing it every day, twice a day for about three months, it wasn't so much the bad patient outcome as it was just the humanity of seeing so many critically ill people who were dying frankly alone and and the and the fright that people had for what is this doing to our society what is it doing to their the fabric of their family have you had time along with your colleagues yet to think about the longer term impact that the pandemic and the horrors that so many physicians experienced. Um, will that take a toll on the profession or on this generation of providers? Yeah, that's a really interesting, provocative question. I, I don't know if anyone knows, but but we do know that it is leading to people retiring early. So that 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 is a known phenomenon. We know what will it do to the you know, current medical students or residents or, or junior faculty, will it change them fundamentally, how long they work, what they choose to do? I don't think that we know that. Um, you know, I, I think that we in general have somewhat short memories. So, so unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not quite sure which, maybe the acute experience of the last 15 months will also fall into that and and the experiences of the last 15 months will just be subsumed within 
within the knowledge and the experience and the history of each individual person, and they will just go on the normal trajectory that they would otherwise. I mean, I, I hope that's the case that we don't lose, you know, a significant portion of physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, et cetera, because of this. But in the short term, we clearly have and probably will for the next short term as well. So we'll talk more about this as the conversation goes on. But I mean, perhaps the, you know, talking about the pandemic and physician and clinician wellness is a, is a, you, the, the timing of the initiation of your office really was ideal in, in that sense. So what are some of the other supports that you offer? We just talked about peer support net, network, uh, wellness coaching, mindfulness. Can you talk about some of these ongoing supports? Yes. Yeah. So we're really excited about the prospects for our, our free wellness coaching. There's lots of different types of coaching, right? Michael Jordan had a coach. <laughs> there's professional coaching, there's executive coaching, and there is a relatively new form of coaching called wellness coaching. And there are certifications in wellness coaching. And based largely off of a study published from the Mayo Clinic in JAMA in 2019, we along with the support of a grant from the risk management, created a cohort of six certified wellness coaches. And we opened up this coaching to any resident or fellow nurse practitioner, PA or faculty member who wanted wellness coaching. And we started that in January of 2021. We're doing it as part of a study. So we're, we're comparing the people who get coaching and we're looking at validated surveys of their wellness as well as subjective impressions of the program and we're going to compare them to people who requested wellness coaching but due to supply and demand can't get it until the end of the year and so that's going to be our control cohort and so we we want to compare the effects of the wellness coaching on people's wellness in uh, those who get the coaching and those who want it but couldn't get it, but eventually will get it. Yeah. And what does that coaching look like? And how are you defining wellness? Yeah. So that's a great question. You know, so wellness is not the absence of burnout. So, so I, I tried to use the word wellness rather than burnout. But, you know, you can be not burnt out and yet not be well. So our focus shouldn't be on eliminating, preventing burnout, but really helping people thrive and be well. And so wellness coaching is, is largely based off the tenets of positive psychology, whereby you get someone to, to verbally and write down what it is, what is their envisioned future? What is it that they want in their life, in, in their career, in their being? And it's funny because most people kind of don't think that way, but you actually go through an exercise of let's, let's write down what it is a perfect envisioned future for you would look like. And then you create intermediate steps and then short-term steps and goal setting about how to get there. And it, it's really exploring, it's, it's the coach asking um, lots of questions and letting, and it's not the wellness coach doesn't tell people what to do at all. Unlike Michael Jordan's coach, you let the person figure out what they want 
And then you facilitate the small steps and behavioral changes that people can do to get to that envisioned future. And our wellness coaching program, it lasts three months, uh, the wellness coaching, and we offer um, four hours of free wellness coaching for anyone who wants it. And I think that the next step may be uh, doing this as not only a one-on-one, -on -one, but opening up to, to small group wellness coaching, which may be a way to reach more people with this extraordinarily valuable experience. Are you finding that people are coming to you and that they're getting the help they need? So that's a great question. All of the offerings that we provide are confidential. But, you know, even though you could say that to people, sometimes people still worry that, oh, my boss is going to hear about this or, or, you know, this is going to affect my credentialing or potential job application or something like that, which is entirely not the case. What we know through UMass's experience with the PWAC, the Physician Wellness Academic Consortium, that every institution who, which creates programming like we have, no one has the participation in the programs that we ultimately think is required or necessary or good. That there is generally, quote, underutilization, unquote, for these programs. And it's multifactorial. It's clearly the confidential the confidentiality of these programs that people have concerns about. Despite the messaging that we do, people say, well, I didn't know that was available, right? And so there's an adage that you should communicate seven times more than you think you should uh, to get a message out. And, and maybe that's the case. I think there's also in healthcare, a hesitancy to ask for help, right? Now that's not what we do. We just put our head down and bear it. And, and it's a sign of weakness if you ask for help or something like that. So I think it's, many of these feelings and thoughts um, and unknowns that kind of converge to generally give people pause in asking for help. So I think it's great that these resources are available and hopefully some of those, you know, legacies of the past that might discourage people to reach out will start to fall by the wayside. So, I want to talk about you a little bit. You're an emergency physician, emergency medicine physician and professor by training, still actively practicing and completed a fellowship in toxicology. I'm curious what fostered your interest in the well-being of your colleagues and yourself? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it really is a personal story. You know, someone who I would have never asked for help from anyone ever. And um, my boss, Dr. Greg Volturo, chairman of emergency medicine, hired a coach for me uh, as I was looking for career advancement opportunities. And she began this relationship by doing a really thorough 360 degree evaluation of me, doing interviews with 12 people with whom I work and, and writing this very thorough and complete report about her interviews with other people about me. Oh, wow. And her report started with three quotes from other people. And those quotes were, Steve looks terrible. Steve looks like he's carrying the burdens of the department on his shoulders. 
and I'm worried about Steve. Oh, those are eye-opening quotes. Yeah. So for me, that was that was the seminal moment uh, where I said, I clearly I had been feeling those internally, but clearly everyone else could see that as well. And so that's when I made a fundamental change to what I do and what I want to do, because, you know, if I'm feeling that way, you know, clearly other people are as well. Uh, and so I was, I pivoted my career to, to wellness to, and, and fortunately, you know, shortly after that happened, the hospital and the school released a joint statement saying they were going to create a clinician experience office. And so the timing was perfect. Mm -hmm. and, and at the time of that work that you were doing with the coach, did, had you articulated to yourself that I'm not happy and I'm not as well as I want or need to be? Or did that seeing those quotes in black and white come as somewhat of a surprise to you? No, I, you know, I, I clearly felt that, but the, the interviews in, in the report that she wrote happened at the very beginning of our coaching relationship. And so, you know, had she not done that, I don't think that I would have expressed what was really eloquently captured in those quotes. Maybe I would have had, it would have taken a while to get there as, as opposed to, you know, that, that report was really like a control alt delete uh, <laughs> on, on, on my wellness or my psyche. And so how has that changed for you? And how do you now see this work through the lens of your own experience and also trying to bring that to like a broader, you know, creating a, a better environment for the next generation? Yeah. You know, for so long and so often we attribute people not being well or being burnt out to personal factors. But, you know, it's 75, 80, 85% of, of people's lack of wellness, if you will, or burnout are attributed to other factors, their boss and, and the system in quotes, the system being healthcare in general. We have so often focused on the individual of, you know, you need, you should do this to not be burned out. You should do this to be well. I mean, there is value in that. And wellness coaching is a part of that. When people decide what they want and they verbalize what they want, it makes some of the other things easier, such as saying no. Now, as a very junior faculty member who's starting the career, right, saying no a lot is not usually the path to promotion <laughs> and success. But there comes a time, and it's different for everyone and how often they say it, when people need to say, no, this is not a, quote, opportunity, unquote. This is a massive time suck that is really not going to be good for me. Um, and so... You know, I think that's a big part of what comes out in wellness coaching. Now, could we do things better? Could the Board of Registration of Medicine in Massachusetts be better about licensing and, and removing stigma? Absolutely. Could our EHR be more user-friendly, particularly for some departments? Absolutely. Can we decrease the regulatory burden 
on providers. Well, we absolutely need to do that. That's going to be a slower, you know, evolution, but yes. So there's lots of things that we can do and need to do at a quote system unquote level. In addition to focusing on the individual and helping give them tools um, to create their envisioned future. Boy, just listening to you talk about some of the things that you're thinking about, that's an ambitious path and future that you've got for you and your office and your goals that you've set. And uh, I guess I wanna thank you on behalf of the caregivers for creating the space to have these conversations and to take a step back and stop and think about your wellness and your own goals and, and how that um, can really enrich your career in medicine. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it's definitely my passion and I'm happy to contribute in any way possible. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Stephen Bird, the Chief Experience Officer at UMass Medical School and UMass Memorial Medical Center. You can check out our show notes for a link to the Clinician Experience Officer, CXO's webpage. You can email Dr. Bird and the CXO office at bwell, that's the letter B, W-E-L-L at umassmemorial.org. And let us know what you think of the Voices of UMass Med podcast. Leave us a review or send your idea for a future episode by emailing ummscommunications at umassmed.edu. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.